You may be seated. How do we build our relationship with God? How do we build a connection to God? How do we do that? Prayer, Prayer, yes. Last week we talked about prayer, uh, or two weeks ago. Um, Today we're going to talk about the most important tool in building our connection to God. And it may be, and this is almost diagnostic, it may be that you are feeling distant from God emotionally, spiritually. It may be that if you're feeling disconnect, it may be because you're not employing or you're not employing effectively enough the most important tool in relating to God. So today we talk about the most important tool in relating to God, and that's the Bible. We're going to do three things this morning talking about the Bible. Usually, uh, on Sunday morning, we gather here because it's the most important tool in our connection with God. We gather on Sunday morning, we open up, and we read a passage, and, and we break it down, and we talk about it, and we analyze it, and then we try to apply it to our lives. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're really just going to use the passage that we read this morning as a launching point, and we're going to do three things today. We're going to defend the Bible and we're going to do all of these briefly. We can't do any of them thoroughly, but we're going to defend the Bible, and then secondly, we're going to talk about what the Bible is, or what the Bible is to us, anyway. Thirdly, we're going to talk very briefly about how to use the Bible. Little side note, one of the reasons that we have to spend time in a setting like this to defend the Bible is because two generations ago, three generations ago, you know, you went to church during my grandmother's era, let's say. And church was dominated during that era in America and in Western Europe. Church was dominated by the major denominations. Um, Those of you who are in your 20s, you barely know what I'm talking about, honestly. That's not all a bad thing. In fact, much of that is good. But in the United States and in Western Europe, at least, church was dominated by these large denominations. You know, there were Baptists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Methodists and Catholics. And when you talked to someone within your stream or outside of your stream and and you ended up talking about the Bible, you would end up defending the Bible or explaining the Bible by reading from the Bible, So you would let the Bible defend and define itself. We can no longer do that effectively in our culture because the Bible is barely known in our culture, two or three generations removed from that, and what is known about it is not felt confidently about it. There are a couple of reasons for that. I'm sorry, again, this is all an aside, but there are a couple of reasons for that. In the mostly 1800s, streams of academic scholarship began to approach the Bible differently, and two things kind of came out of that. One was they began to study intently, which was a very good thing, but then ultimately attack the source material. So the, the actual documents that we've gone to look at to get our Bible from, they began to attack that and study it and analyze it and pick it apart, and increasingly in academic settings, especially in Western Europe, confidence in the Bible began to be eroded. The second thing that happened is large and elaborate theories were developed about how the Bible was constructed. And we're going to have, not going to have time, of course, to deal with that this morning, but 
many of those theories had to do with the Old Testament, but not exclusively. And I'll just give you an example. I'm going to take too much time here, but I'm going to do it anyway. There was a theory surrounding the first five books of the Old Testament called the Documentary Hypothesis. You turn on one of those shows on like Discovery Channel or you'll see them around Easter time, right? There'll be shows about the Bible. The History Channel or the Discovery Channel, they'll, they'll have something on the Bible and they'll talk in what, you know, they'll, they'll usually be someone with a British accent because they always sound like they know what they're talking about if they have a British accent. And they will assume some of these academic postures. They'll assume that they're true. So uh, one of them is maybe the most famous. It's called the documentary hypothesis. And basically, the, the hypothesis suggests that the first five books of Moses, I'm just explaining, I'm not going to defend this this morning. We'll talk about this another time. But it says the first five books of Moses weren't really written by Moses and the college of editors surrounding Moses. But the first five books of the Old Testament were written probably somewhere between 400 and 700 years after Moses. So many of the stories, of course, are stretched, and perhaps a lot of stuff is added in that's not necessarily true. And it was written to defend Israel's sense of manifest destiny that we're this great country. And so all of this stuff about special to God and a parting of the Red Sea, this stuff gets added in by generations later priests who write this stuff down. Elaborate theory called the Groff-Wellhausen theory or the documentary hypothesis. And much, much, emphasize much, italicized, bolded, much of academia still today builds its Old Testament understanding around the documentary hypothesis, even though, well, one more point of explanation, the documentary hypothesis suggests that huge portions of it were written by the priests around 900 B.C. or 800 B.C., again, hundreds of years after the events of Moses. Huge portions of it were written by an author who called God Elohim, and huge portions of it were written by an author who called God Yahweh. And there are reams of articles deciding which passage is which and what belongs to what author and who wrote this and who wrote that. Even though, you're going to think I'm not telling the truth, but this is true, even though there is not a shred, not one, anywhere of actual documentary evidence that this is the case. There's not a single document anywhere discovered that has just the Elohimists' passages. Even though they argue endlessly, this passage was clearly written by an Elohimist and the next scholar. No, not necessarily. Notice the use of this verb and that verb. And long scholarly articles. Still, this is being done today. What happened? Now, this is all edism. So take this with about three grains of salt. But what happened is... That began to infiltrate, in the early 1900s, American academic circles and widespread through Western European academic circles, and it filtered from there into seminary settings. And so early in the 20th century, in the United States, and especially in Europe, 
American seminaries where people who do what I'm doing, people who minister in churches, where they were being trained in those settings, the Bible was being approached entirely differently. Very academically, that's not a bad thing, but assuming all kinds of theories about the documents themselves, the construction of it, and what this thing actually is. And what you had as a result, and I'm convinced of this, there's no proof for this, but what you had as a result of that is the slow decline, and this is factual. We can't necessarily trace it to its source, but the slow decline of every mainline denomination in the United States and Western Europe to the point that the church is in the condition that it's in today in America where 85% of the churches in America today are either flatlined or declining. And it's worse than that in Europe. I think it's because we lost the sense of what this book is. We lost this as the primary, the most important tool in our building a connection with God. We've given this up. So this morning, we're going to defend the Bible. We're not going to spend long. We, don't have, we could spend weeks just on that. There may be a couple of points during our conversation today where I'm going to say, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but we don't. Then we're going to talk about what this book is to us. And I'm going to make some assumptions. I'm not going to prove everything I say. If you want to talk about it later, I'd love to. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about how to use it. We're going to do that very quickly, even though that's the most important part. That's the place where it touches down on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But I want you to know, I want, I want to try to eliminate the option for you this morning to leave and go, oh, you know, that was interesting, but that didn't really apply to Thursday. Because I think it applies to every day, whatever's going on with you. I think you and I struggle less than we might for some of us. Because we're connecting, I think you and I have experienced more of God's blessing than we might have otherwise because we're connecting and we're using this. And I think for others of us, we're not experiencing it. There's more dissonance in our connection with God than there has to be because we're not employing the most important tool in our connection with Him. So to start off, I'm going to read... Just a section from 2 Peter. Again, we're not going to pick this apart this morning. I wish we had time. But we're just going to read this as the launching point for our comments today. And as we often do at Gateway, let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. So we're looking at 2 Peter today. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it. If it's on your phone, look there. Again, we're not going to pick this apart this morning. It'll be on the screen. But this is 2 Peter chapter 1. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, this, this is kind of epic. This is one of those passages. And this isn't true. I mean, certainly there are passages in the Bible that you read and you go, wait, what? But this is one of those that grabs you right from the beginning. It's very practical. It's, it's immense. He starts in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. So if everything we need for life and godliness comes to us through our knowledge of him, seems like we would want to get to know him more. Like if I told you everything you need is available to you through 
this special pill I have, you would take that pill. Everything we need for life and godliness is available to us through our knowledge of him. He drills down a little bit more, talks about the kind of people we should be, the kind of life we should live. Verse 10, listen to this. Therefore, because of that, look, be all the more eager. I mean, dive in and make sure that your calling and election are sure. Really be sure about your connection to him because that's it. That's where everything we need resides. All right, then down to verse 16 for our passage this morning. And this is Peter wanting to just give them some encouragement. Look, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the coming and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And I think he's there talking in general sense about his life and his ministry and all the things that they saw that were just incredible and majestic. But then he gives a specific example. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the majestic glory. That's a cool phrase, isn't it? He doesn't use that phrase anywhere else. From the majestic glory saying, and now he's remembering the time Jesus was on the mountain transfigured right in front of them, saying, this is the voice they heard. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Look, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. I mean, we heard it. We're not making this up. He goes on. Not only that, we have the word of the prophets, and it's been made more certain. We've seen it in, uh, in Jesus' life and ministry. We saw this stuff that they talked about. And you will do well to pay attention to it. You know that. Go back and read those guys. As to a light shining in a dark place, because sometimes life feels like a dark place. So when you need some light, you got it. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. They're not just making this stuff up. They're not interpreting things. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, Father, penetrate our hearts today. Seriously. Remind us the beauty and the power of this tool that we have and help us to use it wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So one of the questions that occurs when we approach the Bible today, because we're no longer living in a place where we can say, here's what the Bible says about itself, and here's why it's so extraordinary. Listen to what the Bible says. We can't do that anymore. So instead, let's step back. Some people, of course, have questioned whether or not we even have what the authors of the Bible originally wrote. Do we even have what Peter wrote? Do we even have what Paul said? Is this what Peter said? I mean, all we have, Ed, is copies of copies of copies. And we know there's nowhere. We can't go to a museum anywhere. And, oh, here's Peter's letter. Look, the second one right there. Peter had bad handwriting. We have no idea. So, 
Against that, let me say this. First of all, the documents on which our mind, and I'm just going to deal with the New Testament primarily this morning because it just makes it simpler. We'll have to deal with the Old Testament another time. The documents on which our modern New Testament are based are authentic and reliable, without question. Without question. It's not a close call. The documents, and the next time you're listening to one of those Discovery Channel specials with the British accent, and it's making you think that we don't even have what these guys wrote, I I want you to know, I'm not being biased here. My theology is pretty conservative. My approach to the Bible is orthodox. But what we have is what they wrote, without question. In the last five years, seven copies of a part of the New Testament have been discovered. Manuscripts have been dug up in the last five years. Six of them are from the second century. One of them, according to the world's leading paleographers, almost certainly comes from the first century. And among those seven copies, together, these manuscripts represent 43% of the New Testament. Along with these seven manuscripts, almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the whole or of parts of the New Testament have been discovered, and not a single discovered manuscript has substantially, and I'll explain substantially in a minute, has substantially changed our wording of the New Testament at all. Now, Bart Ehrman, some of you have seen him or heard him on television. He is occasionally somebody that CNN will bring on. He's a professor of religion at at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which my wife graduated from, great school, but this is embarrassing. Kidding. He's a good man, and he's a famous skeptic. He's become something, by the way, of a YouTube phenomenon, which is weird in the world of religion, but he has. Dr. Ehrman will tell you that the New Testament is not to be believed in part because the documents themselves are not reliable enough. Dr. Ehrman will say that they're all different from one another. And he'll, he doesn't have a British accent, but he speaks, he throws in occasionally nickel words, and he makes you feel like, and he's a very, very bright man, and he'll point out to you that you take, line up all of these manuscripts, and no two of them are exactly the same. He believes our modern New Testament is an unreliable representation of what was originally written. Well, you need to know that Dr. Ehrman's opinion is a small minority opinion, even among skeptics. That's because this is factual. I'm not making this up. That's because 95% of the differences, and I'm being generous to the critics. Many would say more than 95%, but 95% of the differences amount to spelling errors or minor grammatical oversights like leaving out the word the, or understandable word exchanges like using Simon instead of Peter. With the remaining 5% of differences, there is not a single documentary difference that amounts to a single iota of theological change in Christianity. There's not a document anywhere that says, whoops, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Wow, three days later, contrary to what all those other bozos have said, we saw him in the grave. Secondly, there is abundant, superabundant, over-superabundant, documentary evidence. No one would ever raise any of these questions if the New Testament were not full of supernatural stories, and that's just a fact. Dr. Ehrman might come here and disagree, but that's a fact. I'll tell you why, and I can't say enough about this, so I'm going to be brief. As I said, there are almost 6,000, remember that, 
Greek manuscripts of the New Testament or parts of it that have been discovered in the last 300 years roughly. This is absolutely unparalleled among ancient sources. I just want to give you one example. I could give you reams. For example, let's compare that to Julius Caesar's account of the Gallic War. So Caesar conducted a military campaign in the region of modern-day France and Belgium, somewhere between 50 and 58 B.C., so, you know, a generation before the birth of Jesus. He wrote an account of his military escapades and his eventual, the Roman victory. The account provides the basis of most of what we know about Roman military history, especially during this period. No one doubts the authenticity of this account. You read it consistently in history books when you did uh, world history in the fifth grade or whenever you did it, and then again in the 11th grade or whenever you did it, and then in, in world civilizations or European civilization in college, whatever course you took if you went. And yet our modern translations of this work are built upon 10 good manuscripts. And the earliest of these manuscripts is dated 900 years after it was originally written. Clearly and without question, we have what the original authors of the New Testament wrote. However, the more pressing question is whether or not what we have can be reasonably believed. Even if we have what Peter wrote or what Mark wrote, can we believe it? Can a reasonable person believe the documents of the New Testament? Well, I just want to say a couple of things about this. This is a longer discussion, obviously, but first of all, the documents were written too near to the events to allow for the encroachment of mythology. Just myth and legend and people making stuff up doesn't explain this. For example, let's take the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are often referred to as the Gospels, the, the biographies of Jesus. John was written somewhere around 90 A.D. That's not disputed. That's roughly 60 years after Jesus' death, a little less. Matthew and Luke were written somewhere between 70 and 85 A.D., that's about 40, 45 years after Jesus. Mark was written between 64 and 65 A.D. This is roughly 30 to 35 years after Jesus. There were people who were still alive, without question, when these were written and circulated, who had seen the events. Is that what happened, Bill? I didn't see all of that, but, you know, the part I saw, yeah. In fact... We have Luke telling us that that's exactly how he put his document together. So Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account. Many. We don't have them all, but many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. And that's exactly what you would expect. If you saw a dead guy walking around after a few days and he didn't smell, and he, he wasn't a walking dead zombie, you would think that, well, even if he was a walking dead zombie, but in this case he wasn't, you would think that you would want to write that down, and many evidently did. The things that were fulfilled among us, just that they've been handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So let's just make sure. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to believe, Luke, you're an idiot if you don't. But it does mean that Luke is writing history. He's not writing myth. He's actually gone and, okay, what happened next? So the documents were written too near to the events to allow for the encroachment of mythology. 
Paul's letter is even more to the point. Paul's letter to the Galatians, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, it's one of his little books in, in the New Testament. It was written before 50 A.D. This is less than 20 years after the death of Jesus. First and Second Thessalonians were written around 50 A.D. And First and Second Corinthians, they were written between 54 and 56 A.D. This is about 20 years after the death of Jesus. And I want to read you one passage for what Paul says in this letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, who was still alive, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living though some have fallen asleep. This is not the kind of thing you make up. 20 years, for some of you, you're thinking, yeah, that's kind of a long time ago. For me, 20 years is not that long. There were some people as old as me who were around thinking, yeah, I remember this like it was yesterday. And I do. I remember changing Jordan's diaper, and it wasn't pretty. So that, that kind of thing, that's... He's not making this up. It's too near for mythology to have developed. So they believed what they had written to be true, literally true, actual events that happened among them or to them. They believed it. They might have been delusional, but 500 people at one time, delusional. Okay, that stretches the imagination almost as much as trying to believe the supernatural, and I get it. It's hard sometimes to believe, but wow. 500 people at the same... Okay, secondly, there is extensive historical and archaeological research. And it has not disproved the Bible, even though that's been its aim many times. And in many cases, this research has actually confirmed the Bible. Now, I want to tell you right now, because I occasionally, about once every other year, I'll get an article from one of you. Sometimes they're awesome. Sometimes they're flaky. So... I want you to read these things with great discernment because occasionally something will come across the internet about, you know, the shroud of whatever. We just found Noah's boat. or You know, read those things with skepticism. But I also want you to know there is nowhere, not one, none, not one. There is not one single archaeological discovery. There are lots of archaeological discoveries that skeptics look at, cling to, and say, okay, this, there's a problem here with the Old Testament or with the New Testament. There are those things. But there is not one single archaeological discovery at which the entire scholarly world has gone, ah, it's not true. In fact, quite the opposite. And let me just take a quick minute and dial through a couple of famous archaeologists. So Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, 19th century Scottish archaeologist who began his career as a skeptic, and his first book he intended to be an expose of Paul's letters, and he traveled sort of Paul's missionary journey, digging stuff up as he went in an effort to demonstrate really that Luke had not been a very accurate historian. I want to read you the I realize Wikipedia is not inerrant, but I want to read you the very apt Wikipedia description of Sir William Ramsey. He was a Scottish archaeologist and New Testament scholar. By his death in 1939, he had become the foremost authority of his day 
on the history of Asia Minor and a leading scholar in the study of the New Testament. Although Ramsey was educated in the Tubingen school of thought, and this is one of those schools of thought that was discounting the Bible, which doubted the reliability of the New Testament, his extensive archaeological and historical studies convinced him of the historical accuracy of the New Testament. And he became a believer. Second one is William F. Albright. William F. Albright was to archaeology what Michael Jordan was to basketball. And any archaeologist would acknowledge that. Now, William F. Albright did not end his career agreeing with me about many interpretive issues in the New Testament. He was a couple of steps removed from what I would consider orthodoxy, but he ended his archaeological career and his life as a believer, firmly so. And that's not where he started. I want to read you something that Albright wrote three-fourths of the way through his life and then at the end of his life. So he said this in, in one of his books. During these 15 years, my rather skeptical attitude toward the accuracy of Israelite historical tradition has suffered repeated jolts. His skepticism had suffered jolts. As discovery after discovery confirmed the historicity of details which might reasonably have been considered legendary. My view that these details in the Old Testament were really legendary. Archaeology has shown me time after time, well, that's probably history. Near the end of his life, he says this, conservative scholars are, we believe, entirely justified in their vigorous denunciation of all efforts to prove the existence of fraudulent invention and deliberate forgery in the Bible. That's just not what this book is. It's not forgery. It's not invention. They are equally within their rights in objecting most emphatically to the introduction of a spurious mythology into the book. What we have in the New Testament can reasonably, reasonably be believed. I want to add two additional comments about this book that help illustrate this morning for us just how profoundly unique it is. First of all, I'll state the obvious, but then let me tell you why. The Bible deals with Jesus. So here's what I mean. Not only is the material weighty and majestic, but if Jesus is who he claims to have been, this book is the only reliable firsthand witness to his life and ministry. Just that alone makes it unique. Okay, in the case of the Old Testament, it points to Jesus with by the way, with remarkable clarity and sometimes specificity hundreds of years before the events. In the case of the New Testament, it gives an actual eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus and an inspired explanation of the significance of his life and ministry. In other words, let me say again, if Jesus is believable, then this is not only a unique book, it is the unique book because it is the testimony to Jesus. That's where somebody who likes America and apple pie and loves God says amen. But they said it even more enthusiastically because <laughs> that was a profound point. It is the unique book because it's the testimony to him. Secondly, this is an aside, but don't, don't snooze on this. The, the way in which details were honestly portrayed in the Bible and are co coherent with one another set the Bible radically apart. Just try reading some other, especially ancient material, 
ancient source material. As you read through the Bible, you are regularly confronted with details that would not be included if the incident described wasn't an actual event. Plus, it never feels random. There are definitely times when it feels completely bizarre, but it never feels random. There are never parts of the story that are wildly out of place. It hangs together. And that's incredible when you realize that this is 66 books by over 40 authors written over the course of 1,500 years. Okay, so defense of the Bible, done. What is the Bible to us? What is the Bible? Let me just say two things, and I I hope to set up some markers in our minds, even things to think about this week as we go to it. First of all, and very, very importantly, the Bible is our standard. The Bible is our standard. All right, we have to have a standard. There has to be something against which we measure all things. There has to be a bottom line, so to speak. For example, think of how important measuring physical things is. Think, for example, of an inch. On the screen, I've got the mathematical definition of an inch. We all learn some variation of this in elementary school. I don't remember when. We were too young. All right, you and I might agree or disagree about how many inches I am from the edge of the stage. But we will never be able to reliably agree unless we agree on what an inch is. I want you to think about how important that is. Think about the people who are building our building. Let's say the people who are constructing our steel beams for us in North Carolina are using a different inch than the people who are measuring the building across the street. If you're visiting with us today, thanks for coming. We're constructing a facility as you go out toward 50 on your right on Gum Spring, and we're so excited about what God is about to do at Gateway. This is going to blow up, and it's going to be really, I mean that in a good way. Diane always goes, ooh, when I say that, in a good way. If you're visiting, I I just need to be honest with you. We need you. So if you feel somebody grabbing your ankles on the way out, it might be me. We need to put you to work. If you want to come sit, that's okay for a little while. But we'd like you to go to work. Where was I? Okay, so imagine the steel beams and the guys in North Carolina, they're using this as their inch. And the guys who are constructing the steel across the street over here are using this as their inch. We got a serious problem. (laughs) This is not going to fit. They're going to bring beams and raise it up. Wait, what? Forget the screws. Call those guys in North Carolina. What happened? Because there has to be a standard. Okay, the Internet's a wonderful thing. I'm sorry, another parenthesis over here, but this just fascinated me. Uh, This is the development of the standard inch. It has a fascinating history. From about 970 A.D., it's believed that King Edgar I kept a wooden yardstick at Winchester as the official standard of measurement. An inch was said to be 136th of this yardstick. Then about 1100, A traditional tale tells the story of King Henry I who decreed that the yard should be the distance from the tip of the king's nose to the end of his outstretched thumb. Evidently, King Edward's wooden stick had gotten lost in the meantime. And this was probably just, you know, a way to to regulate because you had to have some kind of standard of measurement. Commerce depended on it. 1196, 
King Richard the Lionhearted ordered the standardization of units of measurement. In the Book of Measures, in 1196, it was stated, quote, throughout the realm there should be the same yard of the same size, and it should be of iron. And we know from about 1275, King Edward I ordered a permanent measuring stick made of iron to serve as a standard for his entire kingdom. This standard became known as the Iron Ulna of the king. And in disputes, the Iron Ulna was actually brought out and used as the standard. Because you have to have a standard. We have to have a standard. There has to be something against we measure things. There has to be a bottom line. This is even more true of our decision-making and in our thinking. There has to be some point. There has to be something. There has to be some process against which we measure everything else. For many people, the standard is their feelings. So if I feel bad, something must be wrong. Something is terribly wrong here because I feel that something is terribly wrong here. Or if it feels right, then it must be right. For others, the standard is their sense of reason. What do I think is right and true? Then that's what's right and true because I think it. But for Christ followers, he paused for dramatic effect. The Bible is our standard. Not our will, although our will is involved. Not our reason, although our reason has to be involved. Not our emotions, although our emotions are involved. The Bible is the standard against which we measure everything. Thoughts, actions, plans, desires. Now someone is thinking, yeah, Ed, but there are many different interpretations of the Bible. In fact, everything is just an interpretation, right? So what does this really mean? Okay, about that I want to say two things. Number one, we need to be careful not to overstate that. Everything is not up for interpretation. Some things are really, really clear. When the Bible says, do not covet what your neighbor has, you don't need to interpret that. When the Bible says it is wrong to cheat on your husband or wife, you don't, no interpretation needed. It's really clear. Secondly, of course, there are things about which Christians have disagreed with differing interpretations over the years. And of those things which admit to interpretation, we must make sure it is the Bible we are doing our best to interpret and not our experience or our feelings. And if the Bible is our standard, then we need to be gracious toward one another in our differing opinions. I wish we had a lot of time to talk about that. We don't. There has to be a standard, and the Bible is that standard. So my opinion about hot-button issues like abortion or homosexuality, or my opinion about practical issues like how to use my money, or my opinion about theological issues like eternity, these issues have to be set and established by my honest and best understanding of what the Bible says. The Bible is my standard. Now, I'm not saying it always works like that for me. But I'm saying that whenever it doesn't work like that, I find myself slowly adrift. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly or as importantly, the Bible is our inspiration. It's our standard, and it is our inspiration. 
This week I watched a clip on YouTube of a guy who was explaining how it is that the Bible can be the Word of God. And he says to the camera, you know what I often do when I'm speaking to audiences? I'll get some child from the audience and I'll have them come up on stage and I'll say, come on up, Lucy, and okay, here's a chalkboard. Okay, uh, kneel down. All right, Lucy, write, I love Diane. Okay, so uh, Lucy, read what you wrote. I love Diane. Okay, so Lucy, those, that's how you feel. That's, those are your words. No, Diane's my wife. No, those are your words. No, but you wrote them. And he pauses for dramatic effect, and he says, this is what the Bible is. That's not exactly right. That's not exactly what the Bible says about itself, nor is it exactly what Christians have believed. That's what Muslims believe about the Quran, by the way. They believe God dictated the Quran and Muhammad wrote it down. That's why the Quran can never be translated into anything other than Arabic without some degree of dishonor to it. But that's not what Christians believe about the Quran or about the Bible. And frankly, that doesn't comport with any of our experience. There are certainly a few biblical passages which are this exactly, and they're identified as such. So God speaks directly to Moses a number of times, and that is highlighted in the book because, wow, God spoke with a voice. There are times when the disciples heard the voice of God, like on the mountain, when the voice says, this is my son, and that's why it's highlighted several times. He actually spoke, we heard him. Then, of course, there are the words of Jesus, which are, in effect, the same thing. But these are the exception, not the rule, and they should be honored as the exception. Most of the Bible was given through the agency of human personalities that were carried along, to use Peter's phrase, by the Holy Spirit. So let me explain this, and bear with me. I'll unpack the explanation in a minute. So typically on Sunday morning, I am blown away, and this is the truth. I'm blown away and I'm honored that you would show up and listen, especially those of you who've been doing this for years. I don't take that lightly. Periodically afterwards on Sunday when I'm depressed about what we did here together and how pitiful I was, I'm driving home and I'm thinking none of them should show up next week because clearly I am clueless. And that is often true. <laughs> but once in a while, when we've been together here on Sunday morning, well, let me also say, it's, it's not unusual for uh, us to have a Sunday, and a couple of you will email me, thanks, Ed, that was great. And I've been doing this long enough now, you know, I'm almost uh, 35, so I've been doing this long enough now <laughs> that I have learned to, to, you know, I don't put a whole lot of stock in that. I recognize that there are an equal number of you who thought that was a snooze fest. But once in a while, right, we have a Sunday morning together where wow, somebody will text me on my way home and they'll say, that was awesome. Man, that was as good as I've heard. And then even more rarely, once in a while, we have a Sunday morning where God shows up palpably. The Holy Spirit is in the room. And I know that I am speaking 
to your heart. Only I know it's not me. There are even times, literally, I promise you, there are times here on Sunday morning, I'm talking, and I've got a mental process going on underneath what I'm saying, and I say something, and I think to myself, man, that was really good. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. i got to remember that. And I know instantly that didn't come from me. That was from God. It was my words, but it was from God. This is what we have in the Bible, only much more concentrated. I'm not trying to say that my preaching on Sunday morning is like the Bible sometimes, but I am saying that the mechanism is the same. God moved through human personality in a way that was perfectly concentrated. Paul used this phrase, God breathed. This book was written by over 40 different authors. It was written within very specific human contexts and situations and by very definite human personalities. Those contexts and those personalities are present in the writing. They are a real part of what we read. But all of it was breathed by God. Or as Peter put it, it's from God. It's through human personality, but human personality moved along by the Holy Spirit. Look, that's why we have to study it. We often have to get underneath the contexts and sometimes even the personality of the author to fully understand what God intends to communicate through it. So we study the Bible even though there are times when it feels boring We study the Bible because every now and then the clouds break and we see something new and God nourishes us in those moments in a way that he cannot and will not in any other way. So we will not be fully and rightly connected to God if we are not spending time with his book. All right, how do we use the Bible? Let's be quick. This is a partial list. This is not meant to be full. First of all, the Bible is useful for personal growth and growth in doing good. Paul said to his mentee, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you want to do every good work, if you want to be the kind of husband and father that you need to be if you're married with children, the book. If you want to be the kind of worker that God wants you to be, the book. If you want to be the kind of neighbor, if you want to grow in your patience because your family is driving you crazy, if you want to worry less, if you want to struggle less with depression, the book. Secondly, it's useful in finding guidance. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Third, it's useful for avoiding mistakes and sin. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And some of you, some of you have had God's word This book planted in your heart, and it has helped you avoid catastrophic mistakes that others have made. Fourth, 
It's useful for helping us to live a successful life. Joshua, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Let's end. How? How do we do this? We do what it says. We hide it in our hearts. We meditate on it. We read it. We study it every day. That was simple. You cannot build a connection with God if you do not spend any time reading the Bible. This is how God operates. This is what he's like. This is what he wants. He makes it clear. When I first started dating Diane, my wife, I wanted to know all about her. I especially wanted to know about her past boyfriends. So I asked lots of questions. What was she like in high school? What was her favorite band? What are her favorite memories? You went to Polly's Island? What year? Because we were there too. What if we were two little kids bumping into one another on Polly's Island? You would have thought I, was, I needed to run around in the shower to get wet. What are your childhood memories? That's what the Bible is. This is God's story. This is how God has related to people just like us in situations just like ours over and over again. So how is God going to deal with you on Thursday? Well, somebody had a Thursday just like yours, and it's right here. Look, final comment. Many of you do are in the practice of doing devotions, and those are awesome. Like, there are a lot of really, really good, effective online devotions. You know, you may get it at work, or you get it first thing in the morning, and, or somebody's blog that's really ministering to you. That's great. What is it? It's inspiring, isn't it? It's inspiring like... One of those conversations you have where you're, you're sitting down with Becca Fick and it's one of those wild conversations where, man, you're just relating and, you're, and God shows up and you're encouraged and you walk away and you think, I am really inspired. Or it's like one of those Sunday mornings where you come to Gateway or somewhere like this and you leave and you think, wow, I am really inspired. That's what this is. That inspiration in story after story after story and song after song after song in the most concentrated possible form. So, a word to the wise for all of us. Don't neglect this. Don't make Jesus calling or my utmost for his highest the cornerstone of your connection with him for months and years at a time. Don't neglect the book. It's harder work, but it's worth it. A number of years ago, when Diane and I were dating, we were living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and she saw somewhere this advertisement for Shakespeare Theater, Summer with Shakespeare, something like that, in Greensboro. And I thought, you know, two giant problems with this. One, Shakespeare, hello. Two, it's... Community theater, hello. And this is, this is not going to be good, right? And I bought us tickets for the whole summer. Oh, boy. <laughs> awesome. Yes. So we got to get dressed up, problem number three, and I'm trying to impress her. 
with this, problem number four, and drive over to Greensboro. And I'm sorry, it was High Point. That's even worse. High Point's only about this big. Community theater in High Point. And we had to drive to High Point and sit down week after week after week for Shakespeare. And I mean, it was Shakespeare. It wasn't a modern take on Shakespeare. It was 16th century Shakespeare. So the first time we went, we go and sit down. I'm with my cute girlfriend, and I'm trying to figure out how to be, you know, be romantic because it's Shakespeare. So I don't care about Shakespeare. Let's sit toward the back so we can make out if we get bored. And we... <laughs> and so we, we go in, and we sit down, and for two minutes, I'm thinking, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be, <laughs> honestly. And about three more minutes... You know, it's not bad. I'm actually understanding this a little bit. Ten minutes in, I was enraptured. Seriously. I loved it. We spent the whole summer talking about our favorite actors. They were great. They did a really good job in High Point, North Carolina. Every week now I knew the deal. I knew that I would walk in, let's sit toward the front, Diane, I want to hear. We would sit down... And it would take me about five minutes to get the rhythm of Shakespeare. And once I did, man, it would roll over me. This guy was, he invented everything we know about writing, right? That's this book. You sit down on Thursday morning and you open it up and Jehoshima Smeal begat a Shmeal. And it's not scintillating. But you've got to get the rhythm. And when you get the rhythm, oh my goodness, your heart opens up. Your mind expands. And God says, see? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book. I thank you for the stories. I thank you so much for the life that Isaiah lived struggled just like we did, and he was a total goofball. But every now and then he sat down and something unbelievable happened. And you moved him. And he said stuff that was, wow. And I thank you for David. Clueless. He screwed up over and over again, God, and yet he loved you and he had your heart. And once in a while he sat down and, wow. I thank you for Moses. And for Jeremiah, Jeremiah, clueless, wanted you to kill him. And yet he loved you. And he honored you in what he said. And I thank you for Micah and Matthew and Luke. Thank you for Paul, God. For Peter. I thank you for their sacrifice. You know, Lord, we have it really easy Nobody's wanting to crucify us. And I thank you for those that following you, Jesus, they laid down their life for this. Thank you. Thank you for John, for Ezekiel and for Daniel, for Hosea and Joel. Thank you for Amos and Obadiah. Lord, we love your word. And we want to be people who build our lives on it.
quick song before we go to pure and holy passion. Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may see. Open my ears that I may hear. Open your word that it may to my heart to yours. Guide my steps to follow. Say it again. Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I. Open my ears that I may hear Open your word that I made to my heart to you Guide my steps to follow after you So go and follow hard after you Go and follow hard after you Go as your disciple Lead me on. 